Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 137 for the second half of July 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is why Earth is old without using radiometric dating. The basic fundamental claim in this episode comes from young Earth creationism. Earth is only 6,000 years old, or at least it's less than 10,000 years old. Modern-day creationist arguments against the scientific claims of the age of Earth almost exclusively focus on the alleged flaws in radiometric dating methods. I've already spent two episodes on that, back in episode 38 and 39, but I haven't really talked about other evidence that Earth is old. Why scientists think Earth is old comes from a number of fields, and radiometric dating methods are really the new kid on the block. So, this episode is going to focus more on those other reasons and lines of evidence, so that if you ever happen to be in a conversation with a young Earth creationist, and you want to try to argue with them that Earth is old, and you don't want to talk about radiometric dating or biology, well, then you can do so. One of the most basic, early assumptions is that Earth is at least as old as the oldest recorded human civilization. Many will look to Egypt for that, but young Earth creationists don't really have to do any real manipulation to get something less than 6,000 years old. There is no continuous, recorded Egyptian history that goes past about 5,000 years ago. However, there is plenty of evidence for civilization before recorded history, but it's easier for young Earth creationists to compress that time period. Where the young Earth creationists have to massage dates is to fit the chronology into the Genesis Flood, and Exodus. We can also look to ancient Sumer. Unfortunately, that also gets us back to only about 5,000 years ago, although, as with ancient Egypt, there is copious evidence of non-continuous written history before that. Unfortunately, much of it is impossible to date. And so, with recorded history, we get to what young Earth creationists would say is about the year 1000 for Earth's existence, which is about 40 years after the death of Adam, if I remember correctly. If one were a cynical person, and no one's ever accused me of being a cynic, they might point out that this makes sense for a religious text to not start after continuous recorded records, and not to be incredibly surprised this is a basic check that doesn't get us beyond about 6,000 years. And so, Bishop Usher, in his Annals of the World, Volume 4, published in 1650, used the genealogy in the Christian Bible to place the date of creation as, quote, the evening of Sunday, October 23rd, 4004 BC. With the scientific revolution in Europe, scientists were making names for themselves by rejecting previous assumptions and then examining what falls out of it. So what happens if we reject recorded history as our benchmark for the age of Earth? Where else can we look to try to figure out how old the planet is? The obvious place is the planet itself. Enter, and I apologize to anyone who speaks French, Georges-Louis Leclerc, he was the Comte de Buffon, maybe, uh, who lived in 1707 through 1788. He was a French naturalist, mathematician, and cosmologist, and I'm just going to use the Anglicanized version of his name from now on. He is credited as the father of all modern thought in natural history in the second half of the 18th century, and he wrote 36 volumes of his Historie Naturale during his lifetime. 
He was one of the first scientists, well, at least first modern scientists, to look beyond religion to try to understand the world. And in the opening volumes of his natural history, he outlined a history of Earth with little relation to what is in the Judeo-Christian Bible. He was condemned by the Faculty of Theology at Sorbonne, which was the University of Paris at the time. He retracted his claims in order to avoid problems. In later volumes, specifically in 1778, he went as far as saying that the Bible was completely wrong with how Earth formed. He proposed that planets were created by a cometary collision with the Sun, and he made many assumptions that led him to conclude that the center of Earth was composed of an iron sphere of a certain size. He then ran experiments to see how fast different spheres of iron cooled in the lab. He scaled it up, and he calculated an age for Earth of 75,000 years. He was again condemned by the Sorbonne, and he again retracted his claims. Nearly a century later, in 1862, Lord Kelvin in British land tried to refine Leclerc's methods and models, and with the new mathematical models that he built and based on the current temperature of the crust of Earth, he got an age of 20 to 400 million years. At least, that's according to most sources that I read. Some say that he calculated an age of 20 to 40 million years. He assumed that Earth had formed as a molten object, and then he calculated how long it would take the near surface to cool to its current temperature. This is a very large range, 75,000 to 40 or 400 million. But it also is based on assumptions that we now know are wrong, because we have much better models for how Earth formed, and we know Earth's structure and temperature profile pretty well. We also know that radioactive decay contributes a lot to Earth's internal heat. But getting the right answer here is almost besides the point. It was some of the first serious scientific attempts to start from a non-dogmatic standpoint and try to figure out how old Earth is. Not only that, but the answers that they publicly published were significantly older than the biblical timeline, which contradicted the very powerful Catholic Church at the time. And other physical arguments were made by other people during this time period. Physicist Hermann von Helmholtz, uh, perhaps famous for the Helmholtz equation, in 1856 calculated an age of 22 million years. Astronomer Simon Newcomb, a name that I can pronounce, in 1892 calculated 18 million years. They both used the same mechanism in order to get their estimate. They assumed that the sun formed from a vast nebula and calculated how long it would take to condense to its current diameter and brightness. We now know that at least one major part of their assumptions was wrong, since they assumed that the sun was only glowing because of gravitational squeezing rather than by nuclear fusion, since they had no idea what fusion was at the time. The atomic theory hadn't been invented yet. But again, getting the right answer here is almost besides the point. It was a naturalistic attempt to figure out how old Earth was, and even based on these vague assumptions, they were getting timescales much, much longer than 6,000 years. Later, astronomer George Darwin, son of the perhaps more famous Charles Darwin, entered the fray as well. He calculated around the turn of the century an age of 56 million years. He got this from another faulty method, this case for how the moon formed. This is faulty unless you're Mike Barra, of course. He assumed that the moon formed from a molten, rapidly spinning Earth and that it butted out from its side. George Darwin then calculated that the amount of time required for both the moon 
and the Earth to slow in their orbit, especially for Earth to slow to a rotation rate of 24 hours, would take about 56 million years. And again, I'll repeat, the point so far is not necessarily that these scientists used faulty assumptions, but that they were trying to do things from first principles, and they were getting ages far, far older than what the church was teaching. So I said a few minutes ago that if you want to understand the age of the Earth, perhaps a logical first step is to look at the Earth itself. Instead, I talked about physics. So let's get back to the Earth and avoid physics, avoid archaeology, avoid history, and just look at what the Earth is trying to tell us. Geology was becoming a legitimate scientific field in the 17 and 1800s, and these scientists were traveling the world, and they made many different kinds of discoveries. For example, one discovery was that parts of Earth that were now completely barren, desert, and just dry areas had once been covered by water. While one could possibly explain this biblically with Noah's flood, geologists were starting to understand sedimentology, how material is laid down by water, and they could easily tell the difference between single, massive, catastrophic events, like a worldwide flood, versus years upon years of slow deposition. And what they saw was slow deposition. This meant that at some point in the past, there had to be a very different climate in the area, and that during that very different climate, there had been many years worth of very slow deposition of rocks by water. Another line of evidence was mountain ranges. Geologists were beginning to understand that mountains were not static, that they grew and eroded with time. They also realized that at some point in the past, the tops of many tall mountains must have been at or below sea level because they saw many tiny fossils of sea life that were now many thousands of feet off the ground. With current maximum growth rates for mountains, one could then determine a minimum age for Earth, and they got something that was very old. Now these two examples skip some of the steps in between that I'm now going to go back to and motivate. One of the fathers of modern geology was James Hutton, who perhaps was the Scottish counterpart to, as I said, the Anglicanized, George Lewis Leclerc. He lived between 1726 and 1797, and he originated the idea of uniformitarianism, that Earth's crustal features formed by relatively slow means of natural processes over long periods of geologic time, and those processes that we observe today were taking place in the past, hence uniform with time. Because of his work, he is often called the father of modern geology. But Charles Lyell is usually better known, and he was born the year that Hutton died, and he lived until 1875. Lyell rapidly became the foremost geologist of his day, literally writing the book on geology, the book called Principles of Geology, first copy written 1830. He published later volumes, editions, and follow-up work throughout his life. He popularized Hutton's uniformitarianism ideas, which were in marked contrast to what Christianity was teaching. Lyell used uniformitarianism along with two other principles of geology, superposition and original horizontality. Superposition means that if something is on top of something else, it happened after the thing below it. In other words, if I see lots of layers of rocks in a road cut, then the ones on top formed later than the ones on the bottom. To put another way, if I get on top of my bed, I got on the bed before the bed got below me. I mean, it's usually kind of how it works. 
The axiom of original horizontality is that stuff is deposited horizontally. In other words, you're not usually going to see sediments from a river form in vertical layers. So if you see layers of rocks that are not horizontal, something happened to lift one end more than the other. Living in the Rocky Mountains, I see this all the time. So, Lyell used these principles of geology, or axioms of geology, and he traveled the world looking at different geological formations and mapping them. Over the course of those observations over his lifetime, he came to think that Earth was at least 300 million years old. The influence of the principle of uniformitarianism is hard to understate, for it influenced much of the field of geology, and actually it still influences it today. In general, we assume uniformitarianistic, assuming that's a word, processes unless there is evidence to the contrary. And there is, in many cases, and those cases are well known. For example, many volcanoes tend to give you more of a punctuated equilibrium, where you have a catastrophic event that changes things very rapidly, and then things are fairly static for a much longer period of time. As another example, erosion rates in the Rocky Mountains tend to be considered uniformitarianistic. In other words, they have sort of a set average erosion rate over the course of many, many years. However, as a result of the Colorado flooding in 2013, there was just about two months ago a paper out in the journal Geology that showed that it's large episodic floods like that that contribute probably to most of the erosion, at least on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains. Young Earth creationists, however, will often point to these events as clear evidence that uniformitarianism is wrong, but in doing so, they willfully ignore two key points. First, geologists know that these exceptions exist, and they don't claim them to be non-catastrophic events. Second, most events in geology are still uniformitarianistic, especially in the long term, and not catastrophic. To regroup a bit, I told you that the point of this podcast episode was to tell you how to argue how old Earth is without using radiometric dating, at least to get an old Earth, not necessarily 4.5 billion years old, but an old Earth. So far, I've taken you through some of the history and some of the arguments from early physicists and astronomers that were wrong, but still got very old ages, relatively speaking to 6,000 years. Some of the best arguments for an old Earth, I think, still come from geology. I already told you about mountain building and sediment deposition, but there are other good arguments to be made. One such argument is ice core samples. In Arctic areas with permanent snow and ice coverage, every year there's a new layer of snow that's deposited. In summer, when it heats, the upper parts can melt a bit and form a crust. The next year, more snow falls on top, and the cycle repeats. Over a few decades, the weight of the overlying layers compacts the snow below it into a single and distinct layer of ice. One layer of ice for each season. By a process very analogous to tree ring dating, we can simply count the layers of ice in ice cores and get back literally hundreds of thousands of years, showing that these currently permanently iced over areas must have existed for at least that long. Another argument for the age of Earth comes from the salinity of the oceans, and this was used over a century ago, in 1899 and 1900, by John Jolly, that's J-O-L-Y, as opposed to J-O-L-L-Y. 
He observed current erosion rates of salt-bearing rocks. He estimated the volume of Earth's oceans. Assuming that you start with fresh water and that salt is added by erosion of rocks into the oceans, you can calculate an age of the oceans of 80 to 100 million years. A problem with this technique is that it ignores that water is cycled into subduction zones in Earth, effectively including a source for salt, but he didn't include the sink. But this doesn't hurt the technique as a minimum age estimate. While we know that the oceans have reached a roughly steady state for salinity by this point, it probably still took 80 to 100 million years to get to that salinity in the first place. A third extra geology argument, fifth in this episode, comes from seafloor spreading, a relatively late argument to the field, and one that only gives you the age of the Atlantic Ocean if you assume uniformitarianism, but it's a method nonetheless. Harry Hess was a World War II naval officer. He did something he wasn't supposed to do. He left his vessel's sounding gear on constantly, bouncing sound waves off of the ocean floor, effectively mapping it out. This later led to the discovery of the Mid-Atlantic Ridges, which held between them a valley. In 1962, Hess proposed that the ocean floor is only a few hundred million years old, and it's much younger than the rest of the Earth's crust as known at the time, but that it's continuously replenished from this rift running through the Atlantic Ocean and connected other rifts throughout the world. This supported the relatively young theory of continental drift, but more importantly, from current spreading rates we could again arrive at a minimum age for the Atlantic Ocean, and it was many tens to hundreds of millions of years, in marked contrast with less than 10,000. Throughout the last few hundred years, in response to mounting evidence from geology, young Earth creationists by and large responded to these ideas by claiming divine catastrophism, that one or two major catastrophic events were responsible for everything that geologists were seeing, mainly Noah's flood explaining everything. Sometimes events of the fall were also linked in. But unless the flood was magic, it really could not explain everything. And I mean that. The flood would somehow have to, for example, lay down sediments in one go but make it look like they were laid down over many years. Somehow make it look like ice cores had yearly layers that went back tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. Raise some mountains while lower others. Flip Earth's magnetic field many, many times, all in a year, while spreading out the seafloors very rapidly and shifting continents to make it look like they were laid down over millennia. It's, it's very much like the shirt where it says, uh, teach the controversy, and it's a profile or a silhouette of Satan who's burying dinosaur bones. That's why I summarized the argument this way in a presentation that I gave to Skepticamp a few years ago. If you want to believe in young earth creationism, then at this point, your god is a dick. If I've offended some listeners, because I do know that I have some Christian listeners, you should re-examine your beliefs at this point, because... At least as far as I'm concerned, there's no other way to think about it. Your deity created a world with the appearance of vast old age. Everything, except for the writings in one book, tell us that it's old. All of the curiosity, ability to reason, the ability to explore that your deity gave us, tells us that it's old. And yet it's young. Just to prove some point? To me, that's a pretty dickish move. Now, I've skipped over a lot of interesting history of science in this podcast episode. I have a few links to more resources in the show notes at podcast.sjrdesign.net, great website, 
And in particular, there's a really good Scientific American article that I've linked to that gives a more chronological version of the story leading up to radioactivity. And radioactivity is really where it's at. Very, very few places on Earth show areas that are more than a few tens to hundreds of billions of years old. And that's because geologic processes on our planet happen so quickly that you do reach a steady state where you can only get a minimum age for how long it took to at least get to that steady state condition. While that gives us tens to hundreds of millions of years, it's radioactivity that lets us date the rocks and the minerals in the rocks to get billions of years. But even that is unimportant when you contrast it with the young earth creationist viewpoint of only a few thousand years. Tens of millions is enough to say that the young earth creationist age is wrong. And besides radioactivity, I've left out arguments from several other fields. In particular, I've left out other astronomical arguments like the speed of light, discussed in episode 81. I've also left out biological and evolutionary arguments, but in particular, that field is kind of important to leave out of this discussion because it's typically a non-starter if you were to try to have this discussion with a young Earth creationist. I'm just going to do some feedback in this episode. In particular, there are two pieces of feedback. One of them still related to the logical fallacy in the Bob Lazar episode. In this particular case, I heard from Scott, who said that he thinks it's simply a non sequitur. In other words, that because Bob Lazar correctly predicted one thing, it simply has no bearing whatsoever on his ability to predict something else. That's basically what a non sequitur is. It doesn't follow that... Because uh, the sky is blue, I printed out an email about taking photography uh, lessons online. So, in other words, point A has absolutely nothing to do with point B. That's a non sequitur. And so, uh, I kind of agree. Um, For what it's worth, again, the non sequitur is really one of those basic fallacies of relevance under which most other informal fallacies fall. So, in other words, while I was trying to figure out a little niche fallacy that it could fit into, I could simply say that, hey, this was just a non sequitur. So, for example, in the last episode, or I guess uh, two episodes ago at this point, I said that the fallacy might be shoehorning. If you were to think of this as a hierarchy, you have logical fallacies, then informal logical fallacies, then non sequiturs, then red herrings, and then shoehorning. So we could just simply say it's a non sequitur. The next piece of feedback comes from Dan, who wrote in on May 19th of 2015. He said, Very impressive style, and I'm encouraged by your objective rhetoric of argument, which is so methodical with scientific methods that it fully engages me while I critically listen. But I wish you could do a lecture on how you do it, meaning how to keep your passion in check while debating someone who continues to draw logic from lunacy. Okay, I figured that this would be a fairly good episode to respond to that publicly in the feedback section, because Young Earth Creationism tends to be more towards the loonier side. The answer is, uh, I don't really know. I mean, I can listen to a lot of Richard Hoagland on end. I can listen to a lot of David Serena on end. Uh, these days I have trouble listening to Courtney Brown after I did the three-part Hale-Bop episode, um, based on 
revelations that I found in that episode. Go back and listen if you want to know more about that. But in terms of, well, this episode or this podcast in general, I try to approach it from the standpoint that you, who might be a regular listener, are going to be sending this potentially to a friend of yours who has a particular weird belief and you want to use this episode as perhaps a reason to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't have that weird belief. So I try to approach it from the standpoint of you haven't necessarily been listening to me for 137 episodes. And because of that, I can't assume that I can be jaded at this point. You know, I start out one way and then I end up a different way 137 episodes in. This is something that the, I think it's Lord Nigel St. Whitehall, who has been a previous guest on this episode, as well as Lady St. Whitehall, uh, he mentioned this in a blog post a few years ago, I think, about the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, that they've gotten to a point, at least in some cases, where they're just incredibly dismissive, like, oh boy, another Bigfoot hoax. I try to avoid that because I don't want to come off as jaded because I think that that's almost a turnoff to anyone who's listening to this for the first time. They're going to think that, uh-oh, I'm just another one of those skeptics who has their mind made up. So I really want to try to approach this as if you're hearing me for the first time and as if I'm looking at this stuff for the first time and really trying to investigate it to see what's really going on and what really might possible. That was one thing that I hope that if you listen to the live episode or live recording that I did at the Denver Comic Con a few episodes back, I tried to approach the Planet X from the standpoint of, could there really be a Planet X out there? Maybe, but it has to have these kinds of constraints because it has to be at least this far out because we've looked. It has to be at least this maximum size because we've looked and not seen it. It can't have these certain properties because otherwise it would have this effect on the rest of the solar system. But besides that, sure, there could be a planet X. Now, in terms of young Earth creationism, nothing points to it other than one text, and so I don't put any stock in it. But by the same token... Uh, very strong religious viewpoints that have a very large sway in a lot of America. And like it or not, now this is not a religious podcast, or not religious, it's not a political podcast, but like it or not, at least probably half of the current Republican presidential candidates for president of the United States, we have an election next year, again, it's kind of crazy that it's already a year away and we're already seeing stuff. Anyway, um, at least half of the Republican presidential candidates are, well, easily classified as young Earth creationists. And I see that as a problem. It's a problem because, as we discussed in the episode that I, where I interviewed Dr. Pamela Gay, a lot of U.S. industry is built on basic science. And young earth creationism flies in the face of so much of basic science. And so when you reject that, when you have to reject that in order to accept young earth creationism, that's a problem. And so, well, I try to do episodes like this from time to time in order to try to explain yet again, in yet a different way, why young earth creationism is wrong. So with all that in mind, I somehow managed to make this almost a 30-minute episode. Uh, it is July 16th as this goes out. However, I'm recording it the evening of July 4th. And so 
hopefully, barring any problems, the New Horizons spacecraft had a successful close encounter with Pluto two days ago. Hopefully, we're starting to get data back, and it looks really cool. That wraps up the 137th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment for the page uh, or on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on my blog post for the episode, or a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. And for those of you who just sort of, you know, randomly listen to this stuff while you're making coffee or whatever, um, pay attention because you can write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your... Stitcher or podcast website or service of choice. So if you liked it, tell people and, uh, you know, whether or not you're going to meet them in real life. 